Welcome. Open up to the book of James, will you? We are continuing. This is only our second second sermon there. Big welcome to anybody who's here or visiting or, or new or looking for a church. If, uh, if you weren't here for the, for the first welcome, we are... Um, oh, I'm going to get a brother to refill this. McKay, I'm going to leave this here for you, bro. And um, if you can just grab me one of those, that'd be big thanks. So we're in James, and last week we, uh, we, we got acquainted with James, who is uh, the Lord's brother. He's Jesus' younger brother. He grew up with Jesus, uh, always, always outdoing him in everything, I'm sure. And, and what we've realized is this written pretty early on, uh, in the mid-40s, the, the first New Testament book that was written is the book of James. And he is, he's pretty old-fashioned with how he deals with problems. He's the no-nonsense pastor. As he starts uh, un- un- unwrapping all of these things that we go through in life and, and giving explanations, he, he just he sugarcoats nothing and he just gives straight talk. And, and isn't it extremely refreshing every now and then to just hear somebody talk straightforwardly with clarity because you start to realize, okay, uh, th- this is normal. I don't need, need to be so worried about the fact that I'm struggling, that I struggle with bitterness, that I'm angry at people, that I, that I, that I have doubts, that I lack an assurance every now and again, that I lack every now and again in the disciplines of the Christian life. When, when you hear James just talk straight at it and say, that's all right, get your act together, repent, get to it, Jesus is faithful, it's, it's a little bit relieving. Now, we saw last week how, how very old-fashioned James is and just how he talks about things black and white and just gets people to action. He's, he said, uh, uh, it's, he's, he's sort of the, everybody's seen that video clip, right, that, of that movie that John Wayne is in. When, when he's fishing with that little kid by the river and the kid tells him I'm, that I can't swim, and what does John Wayne do? He just grabs him by the neck and, the, and the, the heel and he full swings him into the middle of the lake. And the mum comes running and says, wait, he can't, he can't swim. What are you doing? And John Wayne in his perfect style just, just puffs a cigarette and says, he'll learn. He'll learn. That's James. That's James's pastoral advice. We said last week, if you want to hug in the Church of Jerusalem, you've got to go find Peter, because James isn't that guy. He's, he's hard-hitting, straightforward, and pithy. Very Old Testament, old-fashioned in how he writes. And we love that about James, and we're, we're very thankful. He wrote last week, and we read from verse 1 through to verse 8. And what we saw there is that true faith, faith that has been born from God, faith that has been put into your heart, from God's Holy Spirit is faith that perseveres. It cannot fail. It cannot fall away. It can never wither so thin so that you fall out of the gracious relationship that God himself has put you in with the Lord Jesus. And therefore, your faith, if true, will last and persevere through trials. And so God sends us those trials as a loving God and a good and faithful covenant-keeping God. He sends trials and tells us to consider those trials a joy. Not because we enjoy the pain, but because through the trials, we learn by them that we have true faith. We grow in our certainty that our faith is genuine, and by them, God strengthens us, strengthens our character. And how does he do that? The last section of last week's text says that he strengthens your character by reinforcing it. Like maybe some of you are in construction. He puts the rebar into the concrete of your foundation, which is wisdom. As he sprinkles wisdom into your life, mixing it, mixing it in with trials, so you become more and more able to relate to God and view your life with its ups and its downs, with its blessings and its persecutions, all as good gifts from a gracious God. And so now we find ourselves in verse 9, and we're going to read through, and what we see him do now is he's going to, to address their wealth 
and how their wealth leads them to certain types of temptations in the midst of trials. So look at verse 9 with me in James chapter 1, and the word of the living God reads like this. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will a rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God tempts no one, and himself cannot be tempted with evil. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant, perfect, authoritative word in our midst this evening. Well, we've seen that that as back in chapter 1, in verse 2, he was speaking about all the different kinds of trials that Christians go through. All of the different kinds of trials. He sort of used this this catch-all umbrella term, considerate joy, when you're in this multifaceted, multicolored, multi-layered trial. Trials that, that, that pile up and that spread over all your life and that come at you from all sorts of different angles. Consider that joy. But, but, but in his context... Well, we've realized, well, we've noticed uh, as we do our historical study, I'm sure you've all been doing it with me, is that J- James is writing to a very specific situation. This is why, as we've said, we, don't need, to get, we don't, don't need to get worried when we read through James and we don't find these Pauline style of writing these huge theological treaties and defending doctrines. He doesn't do that because that's not what James is writing to. He hasn't heard of a heresy and now he's writing to fix that up. Rather... He knows and loves his people who he was a pastor over in Jerusalem. Okay, he was a pastor in the early church. And Acts 11 verse 19 tells us that when the persecution that Paul started, that arose after Stephen was clubbed to death and, 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 and stoned with rocks, when that happened, it, it sparked a, a citywide, a, 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 a nationwide persecution onto the Christians. All of those Jews, the thousands, the tens of thousands who had named Jesus Christ had been spread far and wide to the countryside to go and hide because the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the elders, the scribes, they were chasing them. And and I love this, that just sort of as a little uh, 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 analogy, we see that James is saying, consider it joy, whatever you're going through, God will use it for good. And he's writing to people in the midst of the dispersion that Paul started by killing Stephen And then Paul got converted, and he ends up going to a church called Antioch, which was planted when people he persecuted were spread out from Jerusalem. Don't you just love how God works? 
There's just one, one way already, one example that we see God uses trials for his glory to bring us to salvation, to, to, to sanctify and grow his church and spread his gospel. So he's writing to Jews who have been spread out. Now these guys are, I, I know it's crazy and, and we might even find it hard to believe today, but there's such a thing as bad governments. There's even such a thing as bad religious leadership. <gasps> yeah, it can happen. And, and, and in their day, the government was signing papers to go and lock down churches and go and uh, uh, tell those people they're not allowed to meet and go and kick them out of the city and freeze their bank accounts and all of this stuff so that the Jews who loved Jesus and didn't want to die, and that's fine to want to stay alive, they fled. And so now you've got people who are uprooted from their jobs. A lot of their wealth may have been tied to lands and inherited properties in real estate. Now that, that, that's taken. Hebrews tells us that many Christians were having their goods plundered the, when they would abandon the, the, the property because they were under attack. The, the, the Jews and the, the, those other people would find their empty houses and loot them so that they would have nothing to come back to. We find that if they're, they're spending many, many years worth of wages in, in expenditure while they travel and try and flee, and of course, the, the word has got out that Christians are marked by the Jewish leadership, and so no doubt they're bribing people, they're trying to pay for fake IDs, they're, they're trying to do all that they can to get out of the city, and many of them, many of them have found in this multifaceted persecution and trial that a large part of it is a destruction to their income. That they've been left poor. They've been left in near poverty, relying on other people, needing to, to maybe even beg for, for other Christians to help them along as they go. They've had to abandon their goods. They, they, they've lost their jobs. The, maybe the jobs that they currently had have now been stripped from them because they've, they've updated the contracts to say that they're not allowed to employ these Christ-following Jews, these Messianic Christians. Many of them are bereft of what they have. And so you see in verse 9, James addresses them and says, let the lowly brother, let the lowly brother and sister, your version might say, boast in their exaltation. The lowly brother, the Christian who finds themselves humble. This might be internal. This might mean that you are a very humble person, that you have recognized by God's sovereignty and his work and by his grace in your life that, that you are low and you're just happy to, happy to admit that. It also means externally. These people, these Christians who are in positions now in society that are much lower than they used to be. As they have gone and spread out over Asia Minor, they're no longer distinguished people in their cities. They're no longer people who can flash their last name and get into certain clubs and pubs and, and things like that. They're now nobodies. Their reputations are gone. They're being smeared. They're not being trusted. All of their income has been stripped from them. They are persecuted and they have zero reputation. To those people, Paul is, uh, J James is saying, you are lowly. You are lowly. How many of us might even find ourselves there this evening? In this sort of period of our life where you, you can say you, you haven't had as much money as you sort of planned out in your 10-year plan that you might have at this point in your life. Maybe, maybe situations have changed and you've had to go back to uni to do more studying and you weren't really banking on that as, as you thought of your life going ahead. Maybe some of you have lost jobs because of unjust and unbiblical law changes or mandates that have come in that, that you haven't agreed to, and, and now you're jobless, and that wasn't something you were planning to have done in your mid-20s, 30s, 40s, or 50s. If you're in your mid-60s, you, you plan to lose your job eventually, right? 
But, but, but some of us have, have, have had this, this decreased income, this, this loss of the goods that God had given. Maybe by God's providence, he has, he has closed doors on your career that you were working years to prop open. And in a moment, maybe in a short season of life, he simply closes that door and you're not where you thought you could be or where you think you should be, where you ought to be, where God owes you to allow you to be. Maybe, maybe you've been divorced and your finances are not what they used to be. Maybe, maybe you're just a hardworking Christian who makes ends meet barely and you're just by no means wealthy. Nothing particularly bad happened. I'm just not in that kind of, kind of uh, job or income that really skyrockets me to the top of the ladder. Maybe, maybe you've been severely limited in your ability to climb the, the corporate ladder because it is, in fact, corrupt. There's things you're not willing to do because of your morals in Christ. And, and so you, 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 your career just has a, has a ceiling stuck on it. And, and you can't move past that. You're lowly what James is writing to. He's saying, you who have been, by the providence of God, maybe by direct persecution, you have lowliness that James is commanding you to boast in. He says, of all of this lowliness, he's speaking to you, and, and, and Calvin says that James is speaking this way to these people because they of all people, right? You of all people, if you've lost if you've, if you've lost income, lost family members, lost much in life, and you are lowly, you of all people know how fleeting and how untrustworthy people, funds, riches, houses, investments are. So James is writing to you and saying, feed that mindset. Recognize the, that great lesson that God has taught to you of how everything else is untrustworthy. Remember that. Put that lesson on repeat. Listen to it over and over again in your mind. The things that I lost were not permanent. They were not eternal. They were not trustworthy. And therefore he tells them, boast in what you do have. Remember that as James is writing, he's writing to Jewish first generation Christians. There is every reason to suspect that by and large, the crowds that are now in the Christian church were walking around listening to the teaching of Jesus. So here's James, just reiterating that lesson that they would have heard on that hillside all those years ago, just, just a handful, maybe 10 years ago, when his older brother Jesus told them, do not store up treasures on earth. Wouldn't they be remembering that lesson that they saw Jesus give in that sermon? Why did he tell them that? Especially to those in Jerusalem? Because he knew what was coming. How, 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 how comforting for these Christians to recognize that the God who has let this happen to us, he has been giving me this lesson. He foresaw my circumstances. I am not abandoned. To them, to you, James says boast. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. How different this is completely to prosperity preachers who want to say, stay very quiet about your poverty, be very loud about whatever you've got. If you've got any money left over in the week, your kids don't need to eat, all right? Your bills don't need to be paid, but you get a good suit. You wear it to church, you polish up your watch, and you make sure you put on a massive smile. God wants your best. He only gives the best. If you're his child, you'll enjoy the best. That's a, that's a constant message that if you're truly a child of God, you'll always, you won't be lowly. How terrible and how horrible a witness to give to God that he would let his children be lowly. But James doesn't think like that. No biblical thinking person thinks like that. Rather, he's saying boast in what you do have. 
Don't boast in what you don't have. Don't boast about the fact that you're poor. That's really rather uh, neither here nor there. But boast in what you do have. There is a treasure which never fails, and you have it in abundance. There is, a, there is a, a treasure in the risen Lord Jesus Christ that will never fail and you have him in abundance. In fact, you can't get any more of the Lord Jesus if you ask for more. You have all of the approval that heaven can give you. You have all of the pleasure that the Father can bestow upon you. You have all of the justification that God can manage. You have an eternal, infinite love that is poured out on you in the Lord Jesus Christ. If God wanted to make you more blessed in his Son, he couldn't do so. You stand there in that position and in that status because of your relationship by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. In him is forgiveness, and it never changes. In him is the acceptance before God, and that never shifts. In him is the power of the Holy Spirit for your life, and that never fails. In him is the blessing of God, which never disappoints. In him is an eternal righteousness, which can never be plundered or stolen or taken away from you because you take your eyes off of it or move to a different town. In him, you have a royal title, a king and a priest on earth is what the Bible calls the followers of the Lord Jesus. And that can never be stripped from you. So boast because despite your lack of outward riches in Christ, you are the wealthiest souls alive. And then he warns the rich. He gives a severe warning to the rich Christians. Look at verse 10. And the rich boast... In his humiliation. For, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Some people, some of these Jews, maybe even some people amidst us, this evening, have gone through many of the same trials, same struggles, same persecutions that the other Christians had gone through, and yet, in God's providence, they got to keep their wealth. Maybe they, maybe they were able to just take it all out of the bank before they fled. Maybe they were able to keep their income on the road, whatever the situation is. Some of the Jewish Christians were still quite wealthy. And to them, James commands that they boast in their humiliation. It, it, it's as if he's... He's repeating the Old Testament psalm, verse, chapter 62, verse 10. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. And if riches increase, set not your heart on them. Okay, we're not going to come to this text with a kind of Marxist or semi-Marxist uh, assumption this evening and say that poor people equal good, heroes, Robin Hood, Righteous, godly, rich people equal evil, bad, white men, patriarchy, evil, girl. We're just not going to do that. We know that in Scripture there is such a thing as godly, poor people, Jesus, poor, uh, godly, rich people, David, ungodly, poor people, and ungodly, rich people. It's right across the map. Uh, that while the New Testament will, will do nothing to say that having money is evil, that it is one of the good blessings that God gives, and yet every place that the New Testament mentions riches, it does so with a severe warning. It is a dangerous, dangerous thing to be rich. It's like height. 
It's like, it's like being at a great height. You may make the, the same little blunder as you might make on the ground. Not much of a problem. But if you make that same move at a, at a great height, it can have enormous consequences that are, that are destructive to you and many others. So it is with wealth. You feed your heart with, with just a little bit of temptation and sin when, when you're quite poor and you don't have a lot to feed it. And, and quickly the Lord brings you to rebuke and, and there is confession of sin and repentance and not much harm done. But when, you, when you're dealing with money in the millions, the hundreds of thousands, when, when, when you feed yourself just a little bit on all that you have, you are at a more dangerous position. The rich are never spoken of in neutral terms in the New Testament. It's always warning. It's always peril. You're rich. God's blessed you. That's great. Don't repent for being rich, but use it for the glory of God. And here, James's, James's warning is that they ought to take pride not in their riches, like the psalm says. If you have riches, do not trust in them. Do not boast in them. Do not set your heart on them. We've always said that James is, James is a very... Old Testament kind of, kind of epistle. He's New Testament, but he's pretty Old Testament. And, 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 and the language that he uses here, if, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, is, is straight out of the prophecies, is straight out of the wisdom literature, the poetry. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6 through 8, Isaiah says the same. He says, All flesh is grass, and all of its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Or likewise in Psalm, Psalm 103, it says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. I'm sure some of you guys have, have experienced that. Maybe you take country rides. Maybe you, maybe you go up to Toowoomba and you know that when you go in a certain part of town, it's just covered in beautiful, you know, you're, you're driving out there past the huge uh, hectares and farmlands and it's this beautiful, luscious green. And, and then you come just a couple of months later and it's brown and you just hope that no one flicks a cigarette out of the car because the whole valley would just catch. And that's, a, that's this change in just a matter of months. Well, the Jews... Middle Eastern people, they, they had even more of, a, of an analogy to think of there. You can, you can remember back to, to Jonah when, when he was sitting under a tree and the wind came and withered it immediately. They had those types of winds. The winds that would, that would be stirred up by the, the perfect uh, 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 situation in, in that sort of geography and it would come across some, some green, beautiful, grassy field with wonderful lilies and poppies and flowers and in just a matter of minutes would wither and burn and scorch the entire field. That's what riches are like. Riches like fields have genuine beauty. And if you're walking through them, praise the Lord. It's a good gift. If you have riches in your life, praise the Lord. They smell great. They're a blessing. They are able to be enjoyed. And yet, if you pluck one of those flowers, you put it in your pocket and hope that in 20 years' time, you'll still be able to smell it, you are a fool. Do not put your trust in riches with, which, which a, with a simple crash of the stock market, with a simple turnover in, 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 uh, in, in a weekend, with a, with a simple crack in, in your industry, your entire wealth can come bucketing down on top of you. Wealth 
is a blessing, and yet, like the flower of the grass, beautiful, but like the grass, like the flower, it can be withered in just a moment if God decides to take it away from you. And therefore, he tells them, boast in that thing which can't be taken away. Boast in that which God has given you, which puts you at odds with the world. You, you who are rich, you who can get into the parties, your name's on the guest list, all of that. You, you can fund whatever you want. To you, you need to boast in something else. Think, think not of so much the glory that Jesus gives to you, because you have some glory in this life. Rather, James says, exult in your humiliation. Remember that when you came to Christ, you came to a suffering Messiah. When you came to Jesus, you came to a rejected loser in the world's eyes. You came to a guy who was hated by most of his family. Even James rejected him and said that he was out of his mind, his whole earthly ministry, until he saw him resurrected. That Jesus was killed and butchered and marred and his reputation was smeared everywhere he went. No matter how much good he did to people, that's who you came to. And therefore, if as a Christian, while rich, while reputation is high, while you can, you know, throw your weight around a little bit, and maybe that's you in this life, and God, uh, God be praised and God bless you for that, but know that always at, at hand is the temptation to lean more on what you have than what Christ is like and, and, and the cost that Christ brings. Don't forget how, how easy it is to push your way through the politics of the office, the, 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 the investments or the, the bribery of the corporate ladder. Always remember, the more, you, the more consistently you outlive your Christian ethics, the more the people of this world will reject you. Whenever there is, there is pleasure in the world's eyes, and remember what, 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 what we were told, woe to you when men speak well of you. That needs to be a massive red flag. When most people like you, everything's going great, nothing stopped your income, nothing stopped your investments, there's just no moral problem you've had to deal with lately, everybody wants you on their side, all across the, the, the moral spectrum, you just think this is great, massive red flag. Don't treat it like you treat that flashing light on your dash. Don't just ignore it and pretend, you know, hope that it's not that bad and it'll come up the next time your dad borrows your car and he'll get it fixed. It's not like that. Treat it severely. Take it to heart, where riches flourish, temptation grows. So he says, boast therefore in your exaltation. But both of them, both of them can learn this. Look at verse 12. Whether rich or poor, James says, blessed is the man. Not, not blessed is the poor, not blessed is the rich. Blessed is whoever remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life is a reward in heaven that is promised not to the rich and not to the poor, but to the rich or the poor, the ones who have had every goal they made in their life met, or the ones who have found every attempt they made to crumble in front of them, whether your life is filled with misery or God-given blessings and joys and, and the trials were kind of just sprinkled in there. Whichever life you live, you will be blessed with the crown of life by the all-loving Father if you remain steadfast under your trials. 
that the poor can start getting tempted and, and saying, well, God's brought me to this trial, this persecution, and I don't have much, uh, maybe a little theft here, maybe a little lying on my taxes here, maybe, maybe a little uh, bribery or, or woe is me to get the, the generous Christians throwing cash my way. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do that and sin this way in order to relieve myself of trial. No, God says, do not resort to sin. Resort to righteousness and God will bless. Resort to righteousness and God will bless and also to the rich. How many, how many temptations there are for the rich, of course. When, when you're rich, you have money, you have means, you have friends, you have all sorts of things that you might have at your disposal to sort of leverage the suffering to hurt a little bit less. You, you might be able to, to pay your way to the top. You might be able to uh, nourish yourself with riches and, and, uh, and uh, consumerism and buy yourself another old scotch or new car or new pair of heels. You know, this will make me feel better. Remain steadfast under trials, whether your trial meets you in poverty or your trial meets you in plenty. This reward is the only thing God promises that he will not take from you. He may give you a marriage and he doesn't promise you'll, you'll leave this earth with it intact. He gives you income. He doesn't promise that you'll leave this earth with it all intact. He gives you children. He doesn't promise that you'll leave this earth with the relationship great or them still alive. He gives you pleasures and gifts and riches and he does not promise you that they will, will still be intact when you leave this earth. But he has promised that you will give eternal rewards. And he has promised that in Jesus you have eternal life. And that one thing he will never, ever take away. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So, so he's spoken of riches. He did the thing that pastors aren't supposed to do. And he spoke to people about their money, especially in the midst of their trial. But look what he does in verse 13. <clears throat> You know, you read the, the commentators on James, and every couple of lines they're going, we don't know why he goes this direction at this point. He's just, he's kind of like the Proverbs. You, you read the Proverbs, right? Tremendous for wisdom, but there's no flow. Like 80% of it looks like he, he just, he's just been writing down notes as he goes on his camel, sticks it in his pocket, and then just glue tacked it onto the, onto the next line of the book that he's writing. It's going to be great. But it's all out of order, it seems, and it feels, and that's fine, because it's not a theological treatise. It's pithy, throw it out at you, lessons for life. And they sort of say the same at this point. Like, you have to try pretty hard to figure out the flow of James, but, but I think we can pick at least a little bit. Look at what he says, verse 13. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. One of the, the realities that James wants you to know, and this is a lesson for life, every single trial you go through, right under its surface, is embedded with temptation. Every time you come to a trial, or God gives you a trial, a part of that trial, you should not be surprised when it hits, is temptation to sin. This is how it endures your faith. This is how it tests your faith. And this is in fact how it proves your faith. Is because faith will not resort to sin, but resort to righteousness. And where we resort to sin, we then repent and trust again in the Lord God for help and deliverance. But here James is saying, 
whenever you are in a trial, always expect your temptations to come to the surface. The pressure builds, you're under a great deal of a, a very heavy trial, but also the temptation is not far behind. And sometimes that temptation, sometimes the sin that you want to commit is going to be the kind of sin that lessens the trial. We said before, maybe, maybe it's a little lie that'll get you out of the pressure. Maybe it's a, li a little bit of theft or at least deceiving in the income a little bit so that you can fund yourself and not feel the burn of the trial so much. Maybe it is, a, it is amidst the trial that you are tempted to give in to a certain lust. Sometimes this is so that you can shortcut God's lesson. Maybe it's the, the temptation to neglect prayer, to step back off of a controversial doctrine. Maybe in the trial you are tempted to covet other people's lives, to be bitter at the person who offended you, to be frustrated at God, or untrusting towards him. He, he's proven himself that he's not all that trustworthy. He doesn't give me what I would prefer. Next time I'll trust himself a little, trust him a little bit less. Every trial has this sort of temptation underneath it. And James wants to hit right to our heart. Not, not, not so much a, a, a theological problem we might have at the moment. Everybody is a good theologian enough to say we know God doesn't force us to sin, right? We're, we're all going to say that, James. Don't be silly. None of us think that way except your heart thinks that way when you're in a trial. And he knows that. He's, he's, the, he's the pastor who speaks straight, and he knows that whether you are rich or whether you are poor or whatever other trial you're going through, when we are tempted, we are, we are tempted to say that the temptation is coming from God. God made me poor. What did he expect me to do? Not steal? What, he, he doesn't want me to covet? That's rich. Or on the other side, we, we sort of feel like, well, God made me rich. He's sovereign, right? We're good Calvinists. He foresaw from before the foundations of the world that I was going to be rich, that he was going to make me rich. He also knew what temptations and sins would come with that. He still decided to make me rich. My sins just can't be that much of a problem for him. He's okay with this. He, he's, in fact, a little bit to blame, but that's okay. I'm really forgiving. Me and God will work it out, and uh, I'm sure that our sovereign purposes will both be worked out by the end. Or, or maybe we just get tempted to say that if it was a really big sin, I wouldn't be rich. You know, there's just this prosperity gospel preacher in the very corner of our hearts, each one of us, that says, if I was really evil, I'd be poor like the other sinners at church. I'm still rich. It just can't be that big of a sin to deal with. Always, every one of us has under the surface of the trial the temptation that is drawing us to sin. Back in verse 2, we saw this last week, so look at verse 2 in chapter 1. In verse 2, we saw that God is not pointless. Consider your trials a joy because, verse 3 says, God is working to test your faith and produce steadfastness. Okay, don't, be, don't, don't, don't arrive at hopelessness. God is not pointless. He's not watching you like a TV show. Going, Whoa, Holy Spirit, come look what, that, what happened to them. This is crazy. Just, just watching and hoping for the best that you... Welcome. Open up to the book of James, will you? We are continuing. This is only our second, second sermon there. Big welcome to anybody who's here or visiting or, or new or looking for a church. If, uh, if you weren't here for the, for the first welcome, we are... Um, oh, I'm going to get a brother to refill this. McKay, I'm going to leave this here for you, bro. And um, if you can just grab me one of those, that'll be big thanks. 
So we're in James, and last week we, uh, we, we got acquainted with James, who is uh, the Lord's brother. He's Jesus' younger brother. He grew up with Jesus, uh, always, always outdoing him in everything, I'm sure. And, and what we've realized is this written pretty early on, uh, in the mid-40s, the, the first New Testament book that was written is the book of James. And he is, he's pretty old-fashioned with how he deals with problems. He's the no-nonsense pastor. As he starts uh, un- un- unwrapping all of these things that we go through in life and, and giving explanations he he just he sugarcoats nothing and he just gives straight talk and and isn't it extremely refreshing every now and then to just hear somebody talk straightforwardly with clarity because you start to realize okay uh, this is normal I don't need need to be so worried about the fact that I'm struggling that I struggle with bitterness that I'm angry at people that I that I that I have doubts that I lack an assurance every now and again that I lax every now and again in the disciplines of the Christian life when when you hear James just talk straight straight at it and say, that's all right, get your act together, repent, get to it, Jesus is faithful, it's, it's a little bit relieving. Now, we saw last week how, how very old-fashioned James is and just how he talks about things black and white and just gets people to action. He's, he said, uh, uh, it's, he's, he's sort of the, everybody's seen that video clip, right, that, of that movie that John Wayne is in, when, when he's fishing with that little kid by the river and the kid tells him I'm, that I can't swim, and what does John Wayne do? He just grabs him by the neck and, the, and the, the heel, and he full swings him into the middle of the lake. And the mum comes running and says, wait, he can't, he can't swim. What are you doing? And John Wayne, in his perfect style, just, just puffs a cigarette and says, he'll learn. He'll learn. That's James. That's James's pastoral advice. We said last week, if you want to hug in the Church of Jerusalem, you've got to go find Peter, because James isn't that guy. He's, he's hard-hitting, straightforward, and pithy. Very Old Testament, old-fashioned in how he writes. And we love that about James, and we're, we're very thankful. He wrote last week, and we read from verse 1 through to verse 8. And what we saw there is that true faith, faith that has been born from God, faith that has been put into your heart from God's Holy Spirit is faith that perseveres. It cannot fail. It cannot fall away. It can never wither so thin so that you fall out of the gracious relationship that God himself has put you in with the Lord Jesus. And therefore, your faith, if true, will last and persevere through trials. And so God sends us those trials as a loving God and a good and faithful covenant-keeping God. He sends trials and tells us to consider those trials a joy. Not because we enjoy the pain, but because through the trials, we learn by them that we have true faith. We grow in our certainty that our faith is genuine, and by them, God strengthens us, strengthens our character. And how does he do that? The last section of last week's text says that he strengthens your character by reinforcing it. Like maybe some of you are in construction. He puts the rebar into the concrete of your foundation, which is wisdom. As he sprinkles wisdom into your life, mixing it in with trials, so you become more and more able to relate to God and view your life with its ups and its downs, with its blessings and its persecutions, all as good gifts from a gracious God. And so now we find ourselves in verse 9, and we're going to read through, and what we see him do now is he's going to, to address their wealth and how their wealth leads them to certain types of temptations in the midst of trials. So look at verse 9 with me in James chapter 1, and the word of the living God reads like this. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, 
Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will a rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God tempts no one and himself cannot be tempted with evil. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant, perfect, authoritative word in our midst this evening. Well, we've seen that that as back in chapter 1, in verse 2, he was speaking about all the different kinds of trials that Christians go through. All of the different kinds of trials. He sort of used this this catch-all umbrella term, considerate joy, when you're in this multifaceted, multicolored, multi-layered trial. Trials that, that, that pile up and that spread over all your life and that come at you from all sorts of different angles. Consider that joy. But, but, but in his context, what we've realized, what we've noticed uh, as we do our historical study, I'm sure you've all been doing it with me, is that J- James is writing to a very specific situation. This is why, as we've said, we, don't need, to get, we don't, don't need to get worried when we read through James and we don't find these Pauline style of writing these huge theological treaties and defending doctrines. He doesn't do that because that's not what James is writing to. He hasn't heard of a heresy and now he's writing to fix that up. Rather, he knows and loves his people who he was a pastor over in Jerusalem. Okay, He was a pastor in the early church and Acts 11 verse 19 tells us, that when the persecution that Paul started, that arose after Stephen was clubbed to death and, 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 and stoned with rocks, when that happened, it, it sparked a, a citywide, a, a, a nationwide persecution onto the Christians. All of those Jews, the thousands, the tens of thousands who had named Jesus Christ had been spread far and wide to the countryside to go and hide because the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the elders, the scribes, they were chasing them. And and I love this, that just sort of as a little uh, 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 analogy, we see that James is saying, consider it joy, whatever you're going through, God will use it for good. And he's writing to people in the midst of the dispersion that Paul started by killing Stephen And then Paul got converted, and he ends up going to a church called Antioch, which was planted when people he persecuted were spread out from Jerusalem. Don't you just love how God works? There's just one one way already, one example that we see God uses trials for his glory to bring us to salvation, to, to, to sanctify and grow his church and spread his gospel. So he's writing to Jews who have been spread out. Now, these guys are, I I know it's crazy, and and we might even find it hard to believe today, but there's such a thing as bad governments. There's even such a thing as bad religious leadership. (gasps) 
Yeah, it can happen. And, and, and in their day, the government was signing papers to go and lock down churches and go and uh, uh, tell those people they're not allowed to meet and go and kick them out of the city and freeze their bank accounts and all of this stuff so that the Jews who loved Jesus and didn't want to die, and that's fine to want to stay alive, they fled. And so now you've got people who are uprooted from their jobs. A lot of their wealth may have been tied to lands and inherited properties in real estate. Now that, that that's taken, Hebrews tells us that many Christians were having their goods plundered the, when they would abandon the, the, the property because they were under attack. The, the, the Jews and the, the, those other people would find their empty houses and loot them so that they would have nothing to come back to. We find that if they're, they're spending many, many years' worth of wages in, in expenditure while they travel and try and flee, and of course, the, the word has got out that Christians are marked by the Jewish leadership, and so no doubt they're bribing people, they're trying to pay for fake IDs, they're, they're trying to do all that they can to get out of the city, and many of them, many of them have found in this multifaceted persecution and trial that a large part of it is a destruction to their income. That they've been left poor. They've been left in near poverty, relying on other people, needing to, to maybe even beg for, for other Christians to help them along as they go. They've had to abandon their goods. They, they, they've lost their jobs. The, maybe the jobs that they currently had have now been stripped from them because they've, they've updated the contracts to say that they're not allowed to employ these Christ-following Jews, these Messianic Christians. Many of them are bereft of what they have. And so you see in verse 9, James addresses them and says, let the lowly brother, let the lowly brother and sister, your version might say, boast in their exaltation. The lowly brother, the Christian who finds themselves humble. This might be internal. This might mean that you are a very humble person, that you have recognized by God's sovereignty and his work and by his grace in your life that, that you are low and you're just happy to, happy to admit that. It also means externally. These people, these Christians who are in positions now in society that are much lower than they used to be. As they have gone and spread out over Asia Minor, they're no longer distinguished people in their cities. They're no longer people who can flash their last name and get into certain clubs and pubs and, and things like that. They're now nobodies. Their reputations are gone. They're being smeared. They're not being trusted. All of their income has been stripped from them. They are persecuted and they have zero reputation. To those people, Paul is, uh, J James is saying, you are lowly. You are lowly. How many of us might even find ourselves there this evening? In this sort of period of our life where you, you can say you, you haven't had as much money as you sort of planned out in your 10-year plan that you might have at this point in your life? Maybe, maybe situations have changed and you've had to go back to uni to do more studying and you weren't really banking on that as, as you thought of your life going ahead. Maybe some of you have lost jobs because of unjust and unbiblical law changes or mandates that have come in that, that you haven't agreed to and, and now you're jobless and that wasn't something you were planning to have done in your mid-20s, 30s, 40s or 50s. If you're in your mid-60s, you, you plan to lose your job eventually, right? But, but, but some of us have, have, have had this, this decreased income, this, this loss of the goods that God had given. Maybe by God's providence, he has, he has closed doors on your career that you were working years to prop open. And in a moment, maybe in a short season of life, he simply closes that door and you're not where you thought you could be or where you think you should be, where you ought to be, where God owes you to allow you to be. Maybe, maybe you've been divorced and your finances are not what they used to be. Maybe, maybe you're just a hardworking Christian who makes ends meet barely and you're just by no means wealthy. 
Nothing particularly bad happened. I'm just not in that kind of, kind of uh, job or income that really skyrockets me to the top of the ladder. Maybe, maybe you've been severely limited in your ability to climb the, the corporate ladder because it is, in fact, corrupt. There's things you're not willing to do because of your morals in Christ, and, and so you, 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 your career just has a, has a ceiling stuck on it, and, and you can't move past that. You're lowly what James is writing to. He's saying, you who have been, by the providence of God, maybe by direct persecution, you have lowliness that James is commanding you to boast in. He says, of all of this lowliness, he's speaking to you, and, and, and Calvin says that James is speaking this way to these people because they of all people, right, you of all people, if you've lost if you've, if you've lost income, lost family members, lost much in life, and you are lowly, you of all people know how fleeting and how untrustworthy people, funds, riches, houses, investments are. So James is writing to you and saying, feed that mindset. Recognize the, that great lesson that God has taught to you of how everything else is untrustworthy. Remember that. Put that lesson on repeat. Listen to it over and over again in your mind. The things that I lost were not permanent. They were not eternal. They were not trustworthy. And therefore he tells them, boast in what you do have. Remember that as James is writing, he's writing to Jewish first generation Christians. There is every reason to suspect that by and large, the crowds that are now in the Christian church were walking around listening to the teaching of Jesus. So here's James, just reiterating that lesson that they would have heard on that hillside all those years ago, just just a handful, maybe 10 years ago, when his older brother Jesus told them, do not store up treasures on earth. Wouldn't they be remembering that lesson that they saw Jesus give in that sermon? Why did he tell them that? Especially to those in Jerusalem? Because he knew what was coming. How, 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 how comforting for these Christians to recognize that the God who has let this happen to us, he has been giving me this lesson. He foresaw my circumstances. I am not abandoned. To them, to you, James says boast. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. How different this is completely to prosperity preachers who want to say, stay very quiet about your poverty, be very loud about whatever you've got. If you've got any money left over in the week, your kids don't need to eat, all right? Your bills don't need to be paid, but you get a good suit. You wear it to church, you polish up your watch, and you make sure you put on a massive smile. God wants your best. He only gives the best. If you're his child, you'll enjoy the best. That's a, that's a constant message that if you're truly a child of God, you'll always, you won't be lowly. How terrible and how horrible a witness to give to God that he would let his children be lowly. But James doesn't think like that. No biblical thinking person thinks like that. Rather, he's saying boast in what you do have. Don't boast in what you don't have. Don't boast about the fact that you're poor. That's really rather... Uh, neither here nor there, but boast in what you do have. There is a treasure which never fails, and you have it in abundance. There is a, there is a, a treasure in the risen Lord Jesus Christ that will never fail, and you have him in abundance. In fact, you can't get any more of the Lord Jesus if 
You asked for more. You have all of the approval that heaven can give you. You have all of the pleasure that the Father can bestow upon you. You have all of the justification that God can manage. You have an eternal, infinite love that is poured out on you in the Lord Jesus Christ. If God wanted to make you more blessed in his son, he couldn't do so. You stand there in that position and in that status because of your relationship by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. In him is forgiveness and it never changes. In him is the acceptance before God and that never shifts. In him is the power of the Holy Spirit for your life and that never fails. In him is the blessing of God which never disappoints. In him is an eternal righteousness which can never be plundered or stolen or taken away from you because you take your eyes off of it or move to a different town. In him you have a royal title, a king and a priest on earth is what the Bible calls the followers of the Lord Jesus. And that can never be stripped from you. So boast because despite your lack of outward riches in Christ, you are the wealthiest souls alive. And then he warns the rich. He gives a severe warning to the rich Christians. Look at verse 10. And the rich boast in his humiliation. For like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Some people, some of these Jews, maybe even some people amidst us this evening, have gone through many of the same trials, same struggles, same persecutions that the other Christians had gone through, and yet, in God's providence, they got to keep their wealth. Maybe they, maybe they were able to just take it all out of the bank before they fled. Maybe they were able to keep their income on the road, whatever the situation is. Some of the Jewish Christians were still quite wealthy. And to them, James commands that they boast in their humiliation. It, it's, it's as if he's, he's repeating the Old Testament psalm, verse, chapter 62, verse 10. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. And if riches increase, set not your heart on them. Okay, we're not going to come to this text with a kind of Marxist or semi-Marxist uh, assumption this evening and say that poor people equal good, heroes, Robin Hood, righteous, godly, rich people equal evil, bad, white men, patriarchy, evil, girl. We're just not going to do that. We know that in Scripture there is such a thing as Godly, poor people, Jesus, poor, uh, godly, rich people, David, ungodly, poor people, and ungodly, rich people. It, it's right across the map. Uh, that while the New Testament will, will do nothing to say that having money is evil, that, that it is one of the good blessings that God gives, and yet every place that the New Testament mentions riches, it does so with a severe warning. It is a dangerous, dangerous thing to be rich. It's like height. It's like, it's like being at a great height. You may make the, the same little blunder as you might make on the ground. Not much of a problem. But if you make that same move at a, at a great height, it can have enormous consequences that are, that are destructive to you and many others. So it is with wealth. 
You feed your heart with, with just a little bit of temptation and sin when, when you're quite poor and you don't have a lot to feed it. And, and quickly the Lord brings you to rebuke and, and there is confession of sin and repentance and not much harm done. But when, you, when you're dealing with money in the millions, the hundreds of thousands, when, when, when you feed yourself just a little bit on all that you have, you are at a more dangerous position. The rich are never spoken of in neutral terms in the New Testament. It's always warning. It's always peril. You're rich. God's blessed you. That's great. Don't repent for being rich, but use it for the glory of God. And here, James's, James's warning is that they ought to take pride not in their riches, like the psalm says. If you have riches, do not trust in them. Do not boast in them. Do not set your heart on them. I, we, we've always said that James is, James is a very... Old Testament kind of kind of epistle. He's New Testament, but he's pretty Old Testament. And, 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 and the language that he uses here, if, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, is, is straight out of the prophecies, is straight out of the wisdom literature, the poetry. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6 through 8, Isaiah says the same. He says, All flesh is grass, and all of its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Or likewise in Psalm, Psalm 103, it says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. I'm sure some of you guys have experienced that. Maybe you take country rides. Maybe you, maybe you go up to Toowoomba and you know that when you go in a certain part of town, it's just covered in beautiful, you know, you're, you're driving out there past the huge uh, hectares and farmlands and it's this beautiful, luscious green. And, and then you come just a couple of months later and it's brown and you just hope that no one flicks a cigarette out of the car because the whole valley would just catch. And that's, a, that's this change in just a matter of months. Well, the Jews... Middle Eastern people, they, they had even more of, a, of an analogy to think of there. You can, you can remember back to, to Jonah when, when he was sitting under a tree and the wind came and withered it immediately. They had those types of winds. The winds that would, that would be stirred up by the, the perfect uh, 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 situation in, in that sort of geography and it would come across some, some green, beautiful, grassy field with wonderful lilies and poppies and flowers and in just a matter of minutes would wither and burn and scorch the entire field. That's what riches are like. Riches like fields have genuine beauty. And if you're walking through them, praise the Lord. It's a good gift. If you have riches in your life, praise the Lord. They smell great. They're a blessing. They are able to be enjoyed. And yet, if you pluck one of those flowers, you put it in your pocket and hope that in 20 years' time, you'll still be able to smell it, you are a fool. Do not put your trust in riches with, which, which a, with a simple crash of the stock market, with a simple turnover in, 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 uh, in, in a weekend, with a, with a simple crack in, in your industry, your entire wealth can come bucketing down on top of you. Wealth is a blessing, and yet, like the flower of the grass, beautiful, but like the grass, like the flower, it can be withered in just a moment if God decides to take it away from you. And therefore he tells them, boast in that thing which can't be taken away. 
Boast in that which God has given you, which puts you at odds with the world. You you who are rich, you who can get into the parties, your name's on the guest list, all of that. You you can fund whatever you want. To you, you need to boast in something else. Think, Think not of so much the glory that Jesus gives to you, because you have some glory in this life. Rather, James says, exult in your humiliation. Remember that when you came to Christ, you came to a suffering Messiah. When you came to Jesus, you came to a rejected loser in the world's eyes. You came to a guy who was hated by most of his family. Even James rejected him and said that he was out of his mind, his whole earthly ministry, until he saw him resurrected. That Jesus was killed and butchered and marred and his reputation was smeared everywhere he went. No matter how much good he did to people, that's who you came to. And therefore, if as a Christian, while rich, while reputation is high, while you can, you know, throw your weight around a little bit, and maybe that's you in this life, and God, uh, God be praised and God bless you for that, but know that always at, at hand is the temptation to lean more on what you have than what Christ is like and, and, and the cost that Christ brings. Don't forget how, how easy it is to push your way through the politics of the office, the, 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 the investments or the, the bribery of the corporate ladder. Always remember, the more, you, the more consistently you outlive your Christian ethics, the more the people of this world will reject you. Whenever there is, there is pleasure in the world's eyes, and remember what, 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 what we were told, woe to you when men speak well of you. That needs to be a massive red flag. When most people like you, everything's going great, nothing stopped your income, nothing stopped your investments, there's just no moral problem you've had to deal with lately, everybody wants you on their side, all across the, the, the moral spectrum, you just think, this is great, massive red flag. Don't treat it like you treat that flashing light on your dash. Don't just ignore it and pretend, you know, hope that it's not that bad and it'll come up the next time your dad borrows your car and he'll get it fixed. It's not like that. Treat it severely. Take it to heart, where riches flourish, temptation grows. So he says, boast therefore in your exaltation. But both of them, both of them can learn this. Look at verse 12. Whether rich or poor, James says, blessed is the man. Not not blessed is the poor, not blessed is the rich. Blessed is whoever remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life is a reward in heaven that is promised not to the rich and not to the poor, but to the rich or the poor, the ones who have had every goal they made in their life met, or the ones who have found every attempt they made to crumble in front of them, whether your life is filled with misery or God-given blessings and joys and and the trials were kind of just sprinkled in there. Whichever life you live, you will be blessed with the crown of life by the all-loving Father if you remain steadfast under your trials. The the poor can start getting tempted and and saying, well, God's brought me to this trial, this persecution, and I don't have much, uh, maybe a little theft here, maybe a little lying on my taxes here, maybe maybe a little uh, bribery or or woe is me to get the the generous Christians throwing cash my way. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do that and sin this way in order to relieve myself of trial. No, God says, do not resort to sin. Resort to righteousness and God will bless. Resort to righteousness and God will bless and also to the rich. 
How many, how many temptations there are for the rich, of course. When, when you're rich, you have money, you have means, you have friends, you have all sorts of things that you might have at your disposal to sort of leverage the suffering to hurt a little bit less. You, you might be able to, to pay your way to the top, you might be able to uh, nourish yourself with riches and, and, uh, and uh, consumerism and buy yourself another old scotch or new car or new pair of heels, you know, this will make me feel better. Remain steadfast under trials, whether your trial meets you in poverty or your trial meets you in plenty. This reward is the only thing God promises that he will not take from you. He may give you a marriage and he doesn't promise you'll you'll leave this earth with it intact. He gives you income, he doesn't promise that you'll leave this earth with it all intact. He gives you children, he doesn't promise that you'll leave this earth with the relationship great or them still alive. He gives you pleasures and gifts and riches and he does not promise you that they will, will still be intact when you leave this earth, but he has promised that you will give eternal rewards. And he has promised that in Jesus you have eternal life. And that one thing he will never, ever take away. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So, so he's spoken of riches. He did the thing that pastors aren't supposed to do and he spoke to people about their money, especially in the midst of their trial. But look what he does in verse 13. <clears throat> You know, you read the, the commentators on James, and every couple of lines they're going, we don't know why he goes this direction at this point. He's just, he's kind of like the Proverbs. You, you read the Proverbs, right? Tremendous for wisdom, but there's no flow. Like 80% of it looks like he, he just, he's just been writing down notes as he goes on his camel, sticks it in his pocket, and then just glue tacked it onto the, onto the next line of the book that he's writing. It's going to be great. But it's all out of order, it seems, and it feels, and that's fine, because it's not a theological treatise. It's pithy, throw it out at you, lessons for life. And they sort of say the same at this point. Like, you have to try pretty hard to figure out the flow of James, but, but I think we can pick at least a little bit. Look at what he says, verse 13. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. One of the, the realities that James wants you to know, and this is a lesson for life, every single trial you go through, right under its surface, is embedded with temptation. Every time you come to a trial, or God gives you a trial, a part of that trial, you should not be surprised when it hits, is temptation to sin. This is how it endures your faith. This is how it tests your faith. And this is, in fact, how it proves your faith. Is because faith will not resort to sin, but resort to righteousness. And where we resort to sin, we then repent and trust again in the Lord God for help and deliverance. But here James is saying, whenever you are in a trial, always expect your temptations to come to the surface. The pressure builds, you're under a great deal of a, a very heavy trial, but also the temptation is not far behind. And sometimes that temptation, sometimes the sin that you want to commit is going to be the kind of sin that lessens the trial. We said before, maybe, maybe it's a little lie that'll get you out of the pressure. Maybe it's a, li a little bit of theft or at least deceiving in the income a little bit so that you can fund yourself and not feel the burn of the trial so much. 
Maybe it is, a, it is amidst the trial that you are tempted to give in to a certain lust. Sometimes this is so that you can shortcut God's lesson. Maybe it's the, the temptation to neglect prayer, to step back off of a controversial doctrine. Maybe in the trial you are tempted to covet other people's lives, to be bitter at the person who offended you, to be frustrated at God, or untrusting towards him. He's proven himself that he's not all that trustworthy. He doesn't give me what I would prefer. Next time I'll trust himself a little, trust him a little bit less. Every trial has this sort of temptation underneath it. And James wants to hit right to our heart. Not not, not so much a, a, a theological problem we might have at the moment. Everybody is a good theologian enough to say we know God doesn't force us to sin, right? We're, we're all going to say that, James, don't be silly. None of us think that way, except your heart thinks that way when you're in a trial. And he knows that. He's, he's, the, he's the pastor who speaks straight and he knows that whether you are rich or whether you are poor or whatever other trial you're going through, when we are tempted, we are, we are tempted to say that the temptation is coming from God. God made me poor. What did he expect me to do? Not steal? What, he doesn't want me to covet? That's rich. Or on the other side, we, we sort of feel like, well, God made me rich. He's sovereign, right? We're good Calvinists. He foresaw from before the foundations of the world that I was going to be rich, that he was going to make me rich. He also knew what temptations and sins would come with that. He still decided to make me rich. My sins just can't be that much of a problem for him. He's okay with this. He's, in fact, a little bit to blame, but that's okay. I'm really forgiving. Me and God will work it out, and uh, I'm sure that our sovereign purposes will both be worked out by the end. Or, Or maybe we just get tempted to say that if it was a really big sin... I wouldn't be rich. There's just this prosperity gospel preacher in the very corner of our hearts, each one of us, that says, if I was really evil, I'd be poor like the other sinners at church. I'm still rich. just can't be that big of a sin to deal with. Always, every one of us has under the surface of the trial the temptation that is drawing us to sin. Back in verse 2, we saw this last week, so look at verse 2 in chapter 1. In verse 2, we saw that God is not pointless. Consider your trials a joy because, verse 3 says, God is working to test your faith and produce steadfastness. Okay? Don't, be, don't, don't, don't arrive at hopelessness. God is not pointless. He's not watching you like a TV show. Going, Whoa, Holy Spirit, come look what, that, what happened to them. This is crazy. Just, just watching and hoping for the best that you pull out all right. God is sovereign. He has handed each one of your trials to you that are hand-stitched and perfectly crafted for your time in life. And yet, verse 13 tells us, while verse 2 said he's not pointless, verse 13 is saying he's not evil. He is both sovereign and he is good. We have to hold those together despite what ways the, the theological tension might want you to pull. Or despite what what, which way the trial might tempt you to tilt, you do not push to one of the sides of God not being God just being sovereign or God being a little bit evil. It's, it's his purpose. It's his fault that sin is coming up in my heart. I guess all I can do is submit to the purposes and Jesus died for it all and God's sovereign, it'll all work out. Rather, in your trial, God is proving and improving your faith Satan, the flesh, the world is trying to bring down your faith. There's, there's just no better picture of this than the Lord Jesus in the desert. Right? He was baptized, 
And who drove Jesus to the desert to fast? It was the Holy Spirit. We're told in Scripture, the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness so that he would fast and he would suffer in the desert. And yet, what we're getting at is that this word that, that is translated trial is the same word that is translated tempted. So that the only way to know which, which version of that is the correct translation is by looking at the context. The trial is the same situation as the temptation, but God is in it, trialing you, and Satan, the flesh, the world is in it, tempting you. Jesus is in the desert. God put him there. God took him there. God made him fast. God made him suffer. But Satan was there to tempt him. Same situation. While Satan was tempting, God was proving. Look at my son, how pure and worthy and powerful he is. And here's Satan in the exact same situation, trying to tempt, trying to pull, trying to divert. The same situation, but God is trialing, Satan is tempting. How much comfort we can take in our life, in our situation, and in our trial when we realize God is trying me, Satan, the flesh, the world is tempting me. Trials bring your inner sinfulness to the surface, and yet we do not blame God for our sin. I was thinking uh, this week, I I watched a show, and this sort of came to mind as I was watching it, uh, and and this guy's pig hunting, right? And and he calls calls out a mate to to help him draw out this big boar so that they can clear out the pigs off of the property. And, and, and it sort of came to mind that, that this is sort of how God works with us in our life, that he brings trials so as to tempt out, so as to pull out, so as to expose our sinfulness and what we ought to do when God brings our sinful temptations to the surface is not lay down and feed the boar. We don't start feeding the pig, start playing with the pig, start feeding it and letting it grow strong and simply say, well, you know, God, you sort of brought this one out. Like, like, like this is on you. You drew it out of its little cave. God will say, yes, I, I brought it to the surface through the trial so that you can load your 358 Magnum and blow its brains out. And this is the language of Paul in Romans, that we ought to be mortifying, or in another English word, slaughtering, killing sin. We do not blame God when our trials bring sin to the surface. We thank God. We load the gun of our prayers, of our sanctification, of our church attendance, of our Bible reading, and we blast that sin to smithereens. Do not tempt. We even can see, we even can see this same process, this same uh, 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 habit has been handed down from Adam. Not only, not only did you receive the sin nature, and the sinful, sinful heart from Adam, you also received the tendency to blame. Do you remember that, that just moments after the first sin, when, when Adam, in his leadership over his wife, allowed the, 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 the tempter to lie and to trick and to, and to make them to eat of the fruit, right? That's on Adam. We all know that. That was Adam's fault. He knew better. He let it happen. And, and God came to the garden. And God said, Adam, where are you? And having hidden and having been scared and having stitched together some fig leaves of his own doing, he comes before God and God questions him. Did you eat what I told you not to eat? And what's Adam's, what's Adam's go-to line? So God, I understand you. You have a pressing matter of the whole eating the fruit thing. I would like to draw your attention to just a few days ago when I was single and pretty happy. Whose idea was it to bring a woman into this whole deal? I think we can check the minutes. Uh, Holy Spirit, can we get someone to check the minutes on this? I think that was your idea, God. 
to give me a woman. You put me to sleep, this little anesthesia thing, knocked me out, yanked out a rib, made a woman. That's when it started, Lord. So your woman was tempted by your little devil over here to eat the fruit that, again, who put this tree in the garden? wasn't me, Lord. I think, uh, I think that's on you also. Your woman tempted me, ate the fruit, gave it to me. God, none of this is my fault. It's, it's, at, it's Eve, it's the devil. Your Honor, Your Honor, the Lord himself is to blame here. This is what Adam did. This was his go-to reaction, looking face-to-face to God and had the guts to blame him. Sin makes us stupid. And the, and the biggest clue, I, I think as we say, don't blame God for your sin, we're all very likely to say, yeah, I know, I'm a good theologian, I don't do that. James is talking to some other people here. I'm just glad that that's not a sin that I have. I never sort of blame God or use his sovereignty to weasel into my own sin. I don't do that. Let's just, let's just spare that little inner lawyer that wants to justify you, that wants to free you from this, this, this accusation. From Adam, we see the pattern. If you are somebody who quickly diverts blame to other people, to your wife, to your friend, to the situation, to those other people at church that just stuffed right up, to the other people who let sin get in your way, to her who tempted me, to him who really caused this whole issue, if your first reaction is frequently to point to others and to blame other people instead of immediately repent and confess your sin to the Lord God, then we know Deeper down, you also do that in your relationship to God. Take a check of your habits. What do you do when somebody pulls you up for a sin? Do you quickly say, I know, that's a problem, and, and you should go and talk to this other person about my sin? Do you, do you quickly blame? Do you, even in prayer to the Lord, you, you're just annoyed at somebody else for the sin that's in your life? Friends, doing that is blaming God. Where the condemnation Wear the guilt, wear the accusation, square on your chin where James wants to put it, and then realize that the entire brunt of all of your accusation was received by Jesus Christ. There is no need for self-defense when we are defended in Jesus Christ. There is no need for self-justification and for self-polishing if we are polished and realize that we are justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is opportunity for open confession for open recognition of our sin and and the fact that we are like Adam, blamers of God. Calvin said, This warning of James is very necessary, that is, to not blame God. For nothing is more common among men than to transfer to another the blame of the evils they commit. And they then especially seem to free themselves when they ascribe the blame to God himself. This kind of evasion we constantly imitate, delivered down to us as it was from the first man, Adam. For this reason, James calls us to confess our own guilt and not to implicate God as though he has compelled us to sin. When you realize that your sin has actually been shifted in blame to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's funny how that actually enables you to no longer shift the blame to God, but rather wear it. That's what Calvin is getting at. And so lastly, we, we just see what, uh, the, these two imageries that he gives of sin, verse 14 and verse 15. He says, rather, okay, don't shift the blame. God brought the trial, but you... You took the hook. He brought the trial, but your sin is the one that is what brought about the sin, right? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's imagery number one. 
fishing. Anybody, anybody love to go fishing? Anybody love going, not, not to fish, but just to watch people fishing and watch how many times they hook their own shirt, they, they step on the hook, they let out all sorts of blasphemies, they drop the fish and the, they, they just stuff up. Oh, my favorite, my favorite that I ever saw when I was a, a teenager, we were, we were out there with some family friends and, and one of the brothers went to take this huge, he was going deep sea fishing from the shore, that's what he was doing. He took this huge swing, hooked his brother on the cheek and ripped a hole in his cheek as he, as he cast the line. It's, I can tell you again because some of you are queasy. He drew back, the hook landed on his brother's shirt, and as he yanked it forwards, it just yanked a hole in his cheek. You don't enjoy it as much as I do. I'll tell you again later. I'll get pictures. It was awesome. But, but this is, this is the, the, the picture that James is giving to us. We're, we're people who, who, who in our situation, the, the hook is coming. We're hooking ourselves. When temptation comes, we're biting down on the hook ourselves, and it never leaves us in the same way. Like, like, like the, this is just what fish think. It's a dangling, standing still, morsel of meat that I can enjoy with no consequences. And what happens? We bite down on something we ought to be aware of. We bite down and it pulls us. It drags us. It has first enticed us and then it drags you away. Lesson from James is that sin is never static. Sin in your life is never static. Don't ever think that it's going to stay on the little shelf that you put it on. You asked it very politely. You had very safe little fences around this portion of your life. It's very secret. No one's going to know. It's going to stay where you left it. It won't. It will drag you and it will pull you away. The second imagery of that exact truth is the next one that he gives in verse 15. Sin is not static. It will pull you away. It will affect your life before you realize it. Verse 15, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is what Moo, a commentator, calls the biography of the fool. Temptation is allowed in. Sin is then conceived. Sin is then growing in the womb of your life until it is born forth. And then sin grows up and what it leads to is death. Sin is never static. I love what Douglas Wilson said about this text. He says, there's no such thing as being a little bit pregnant. There's no such thing as being a little bit in sin. You're on your way downhill towards a very sure and obvious conclusion in about nine months or so, give or take. Everyone will become aware very soon of, of what you've been doing. God will be sure of it. Sin is living. Sin is not static. It will grow. It will take over your life. He's using the, the imagery of children here, of a wayward child like, like Proverbs would. It'll grow. It'll, it'll be lashing out in all of your life. It'll ruin portions of your relationships, your friendships. It will not be able to be ignored. If you ignore sin now, it will become unignorable soon. Do not let sin have a small portion of your life, even with the, with the, the excuse, I'm in a trial. I'm sure God understands. That's the, language, that's the language of Judas. The language of Peter brings immediately to confession our guilt and lets the Lord's grace flow over us. And therefore, verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift 
And every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I don't know what sort of father you had. Whether he was, he was pretty fine with one behavior one day and then he'd lash out and get angry at another one the next day. Maybe, maybe he's quite fickle, quite angry here and there depending on which show was on or how his day was at work or maybe what he'd been drinking. is He's just emotionally uh, varying all of the time. That's not what the God of heaven is like. The Father of lights has no eclipses. The Father of lights is not a, a shimmering little oasis on the horizon. And the, the closer you draw, the, the less real it seems to be. God is a Father of sheer and pure light. He is the sovereign. That's why every one of your trials is for your good. That is why none of your trials and the temptations that come in it are designed by God to make you sin, but always for your holiness. And God is a Father loving you, coaching you, guiding you, holding your hand and never giving a curse, always giving blessing through the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest blessing that God ever gave, the greatest blessing that God ever gave, the greatest gift that God ever gave was his son, Jesus Christ. Mark Driscoll, he comments on this, this text and he says, every gift of God is gift wrapped in thorns. Every gift of God is gift wrapped in thorns and that's no more true than the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came not just to give you sheer earthly blessings. He came to be killed so that you could live. He came to be cursed so you could be forgiven. He came to be killed so that you could have life. He came to suffer so that you can have glory in endless ages after death. Rest in this, that your sin is forgiven in him and only in him. Flee to nothing else. Make excuses for no other reason. Simply throw your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of your sins forgiven. And friends, every trial you face in the future, emboldened, empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ's spirit who is with you. Let's pray. Father God, by the words of James, we encourage tonight that our riches are fleeting. And if we don't have them, we're not missing out on much. What we, what we desire, Lord, in our life is to be under the blessing of God. Whether that means we are poor and losing out on things, whether we are rich and you have given us some of this grass to look after for a short period of time, whatever it be, we just desire to be in your blessing. I pray, Lord, because every single one of us has some portion in our life where the trial is, is starting or the trial is continuing on and temptation to sin is promising a shortcut. And I just pray, Lord, that you would enable us to, to plant our feet firmly on Scripture, to pursue righteousness more than ease. And Lord, would you enable us to therefore stand firm through the trial and not be taken like a, like a luring hook into sin. Father God, we know that as much as sin brings forth death in this pregnant uh, uh, imagery that James gives, so also righteousness. That if we simply sow the seeds of righteousness now, if we, if we commit ourselves to your means and your ways and your commandments in, in time to come, we will find unspeakable joy. You will use these seeds sown in the difficult, fertile time to give blessing to us. And I pray, Lord, therefore, that you would hold us fast in and amidst our temptation. Father God, if there is any who do not believe savingly on the Lord Jesus, they love their sin, they feel sin's power, they feed it all the time, their flesh corrupts them and they, they know their own guilt, Lord God, would you, would you give to their heart 
a faith that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you give to them now an understanding of salvation in nothing else than the Lord Jesus Christ? And all who, who seek to glorify him and are thankful for him said together, Amen.